In the early days, when we were discussing the nuts and bolts of replanting First Baptist Church of Situate about four and a half, five years ago, a friend of mine asked me if I had given any thought to renaming uh, this church that we were going to replant. I told him I didn't really think that would be appropriate or that I didn't think that would be wise for a couple of reasons. First of all, the name First Baptist Church had certainly stood the test of time. And I just wouldn't trust myself with that kind of responsibility. You see, church names can be a little like fashion. What seems like it's in style and trendy at one moment can go out of style and be not so trendy five years, ten years, fifteen years down the line. But imagine that we had decided to rename the church. I don't know what I could offer on the positive end as far as good recommendations, but I think I can say some that would have been shot down. First Church of Hypocrites, United Church of Hypocrisy, Hypocrite Baptist Church. All of those would have not gotten past any introductory discussions. No one, no church wants to be identified as a hypocrite. Yet saying we don't want to be hypocrites and actually not being hypocrites is not the same thing. Hypocrisy is not doing what you say you believe. As Christians, we get tangled up in hypocrisy when we don't trust and serve Jesus even though we say that we do. See, what I'm going to put before you from our text this morning is that hypocritically not trusting Jesus is easy. Instead, resolve that you will trust Jesus with all of your heart. Let me say this again. Hypocritically not trusting Jesus is easy. Instead, resolve that you will trust Jesus with all of your heart. I invite you to follow along as I read Luke chapter 11, verse 37 through chapter 12, verse 12. And think of the the part in chapter 11, verses 37 to 54 as as an example, and then chapter 12, verses 1 to 12 as, as an exhortation in light of that example. So follow along as I read. While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went in and reclined at table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. And the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools! Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb, and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without knowing it. One of the lawyers answered him, Teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. And he said to you, Woe to you, lawyers also, for you load people with burdens hard to bear. And you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses, and you consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them, and you build their tombs. 
Therefore, also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. Woe to you, lawyers! For you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. As he went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. In the meantime, when so many thousands of the people had gathered together that they were trampling one another, he began to say to his disciples first, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed, or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. The Pharisees loved to be recognized and celebrated by crowds. They wanted to be adored and celebrated, but they did not... Oh, I skipped over a spot there, sorry. Verse 4, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies and not one of them is forgotten by God, forgotten before God? Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows. And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man will also acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. I navigate our way through this passage first by seeing the ugliness of hypocrisy. In chapter 11, verse 37 to 54, remember we're in a section of the Gospel of Luke where Jesus is clearly defining and illustrating exactly what he means for those who would follow after him. And this, this is regularly putting himself at odds with the religious leaders, with Pharisees, with lawyers, with scribes. And so in the context of trying to understand him and of trying to get a better grasp on him, a Pharisee invites him over for dinner in verse 37. But the Pharisee is, sta- is, astonished, is astonished Excuse me, that Jesus did not wash before dinner. Now this washing before dinner, it's not that Jesus had bad hygiene and he didn't wash his hands. They had this system of, of ritual purification that they would do before dinner. And he's astonished that Jesus did not line right up and do this ritual purification. And now look at how Jesus responds in verse 39. And the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees, you cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish. But inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? See, Jesus is saying you're so concerned with your outward appearances of righteousness, 
but you give little thought to the greed, to the wickedness that consumes your heart. This is the first marker of the ugliness of hypocrisy. It values outward appearance over inward reality. In verses 42 to 44, Jesus would pronounce three different woes. Woes were simply God's promised judgment upon those who transgressed against him. Pronouncements of God's judgment. Verse 42, but woe to you Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogue and greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves and people walk all over them without knowing it. You see how these illustrate concern with outward appearance with little concern with inward reality. The Pharisees would give 10% of all they had, even down to the little plants in their garden, carefully measuring out the little uh, plants, and, 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 they would, and, and they would make sure to give 10% of this to the work of God, while they always neglected the heavier matters of justice and love for God. But hey, what does justice or love for God matter whenever you're very meticulous in your giving of your tithes and offerings? Now, it's interesting. We'll say more about this next week, about how we should understand financial giving, because Jesus addresses it in chapter 12. But he shows us here, you do not give to God, or you do not sacrifice, or you do not tithe and give 10% of your income in order to think that you are going to receive uh, uh, the blessing of God upon you, or to have a greater voice before those around you, or to be seen and appreciated and celebrated as wealthy or as generous. Jesus says in doing so, you're just feeding the self-righteousness of your own heart. You're playing with fire. And this is the crux of the matter. Righteous deeds done to feed unrighteous motivations of those who perform them. Invite the woe, the judgment of God. See, the Pharisees, as verse 43 shows us, they love to be recognized. They love to be celebrated by crowds. They wanted to be adored. They wanted to be made much of. But they did not want to serve God. They wanted to serve their own arrogance. Look at this third woe in verse 44. According to Old Testament law, contact with a dead body made a person unclean before God, unable to enter into the temple, unable to come into the presence of God. Jesus is saying that the Pharisees, that, that people clamor to hear from, that they think they have an inside track to God, People push around, push near to get, to get near to them. They press in on them. They are actually so rotten that they make all who come into contact with them unclean. That's what he's getting at when he compares them to unmarked graves. Now, thankfully, in our day of carefully polished appearances and careful attention to how we present ourselves before others and on social media, we don't have to worry about such hypocrisy, do we? Perhaps you know people who have professed to be Christians, but you know them well enough to have problems with Christianity because the faith that they professed was different than the, than the, than the arrogance and self-serving uh, 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 anger and, and vitriol that you saw from them so much of the time. If that's you, may I encourage you that this passage shows us that Jesus does not tolerate such hypocrisy. So hypocrisy is ugly because it values outward appearance over inward reality, but it's also ugly because it celebrates religious fervor while obscuring the wonder of the gospel. 
This is in verses 45 to 52. If it it wasn't so serious, this exchange between Jesus and a lawyer, a lawyer was basically an expert in Old Testament law. If it wasn't so serious, this would be funny. Jesus is, is, is just laying the hammer down on these Pharisees. And then one of the lawyers answered him, teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. Almost as if he expects Jesus to say, oh, well, I didn't mean to insult you guys. I'm, I'm sorry. I, I, I overstepped my bounds there, or I, I failed to measure my words as I should. But Jesus says in verse 46, woe to you lawyers also. You see, those who were experts in Old Testament law, they concocted this carefully designed labyrinth of rules that were required for a good Jewish citizen, a good law keeper to, to keep. Saying if you want to stay on the right side of the law, if you want to stay in the favor of the authorities, in the good graces of your family, here's the laws, here's the addendums, here's the additions to the law that you must keep every jot and tittle. You do that and you are in right standing before God. But in crafting a vast array of laws that had to be kept, they were actually building a prison that those who tried to observe it could not escape. Jesus says, Woe to you lawyers, for you load people with burdens hard to bear. And you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you. For you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses and you consent to the deeds of your fathers. For they killed them and you build their tombs. See, these lawyers and and, and those who walked in step with them, they celebrated their Jewish history. They honored the Old Testament prophets of old. But what was the message of so many prophets from the Old Testament? It was repent. Forsake your empty, outward religiosity and come before God in full honesty and be changed by Him. Yet how did things go for Old Testament prophets so much of the time? They were often run out, they were often beaten, exiled, even killed. And Jesus gives two references that encapsulate the whole sweep of the Old Testament. First, Abel, who was murdered by his brother Cain in Genesis 4. And Zechariah in 2 Chronicles 24, which is the last book of of the book of Jewish history, who he was killed. Jesus says, those who profess to serve God, who proclaim his message, you as a people, you continually kill them because you refuse to hear them. Because you are more comfortable in your self-righteousness than humbling yourself under the mighty hand of God, being transformed. Dear ones, be careful that you do not love the church, that you do not love your family's Christian history, that you do not love anything else that you think is about the Christian faith, yet despise the Christ of the church and the Christ whom those you seek to honor cherished. Jesus concludes this sweeping statement of condemnation to the lawyers and and this final woe against them in verse 52. Woe to you lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. By developing rules and standards of, of faithfulness to God's lawyers, to God's law, 
the lawyers denied God and provided a stumbling block to those who would try to follow him. When they looked at the Old Testament law, it was like they got a painting and they got so close to it that they tried to see individual brushstrokes, but in trying to see every individual brushstroke, they failed to see the wholeness of the painting. This is trying to read and digest and follow the law apart from Christ. The law is not a master that we can satisfy. The law is what points us to Christ who gives us the grace to live in accordance with the law of God. You know, if you're trying to figure out Christianity or you're not yet a follower of Christ, this is an interesting aspect, a foundational aspect of Christianity, but something that is very odd in, in, in contemporary thinking. And that being that we, we think, okay, if there's a God out there, if I do enough good deeds, if I, if I serve the poor, if I, if I help out with charity, or if I, if I try to be loving to my neighbor, if I just do a good, enough good deeds, then I'll eventually make myself right before God. But what Jesus actually shows us is that you can't do that. You can't do enough good deeds to earn your righteousness before God. And so what Jesus does is he actually gives us these laws and this, the, the way in which we look at the commands of God's word and how we cannot satisfy it in our own strength. And he says, when you are humbled under the law, it is then that you are able to trust in God and his grace for you. And you're able to trust in Jesus who was perfectly obedient to the law of God and his righteousness is credited to you when you come to him by faith. And so this is what Jesus would have us to see. See, he forces us to give up any notions of building our own self-righteousness. We are like children who are playing a board game that we're not quite fully familiar with the rules. And so what does a child do when they're playing a board game that they're unfamiliar with the rules? They seem to make rules that are particularly advantageous to them. And so we always bend what we think is acceptable before God or acceptable before our world, and we bend it to our own abilities, to our own situations. And, it means, and so what we see is that God does not set the standard, but we set the standard of what is righteous and what is not. And yet, right here, Jesus exposes such thinking as foolish. And so this key of knowledge that he references is this knowledge that life and righteousness is only found in him and in him alone. See, ultimately, the ugliness of hypocrisy is that it wants to crucify Jesus and not live in light of his work, not live in light of the gospel. With no sense of irony, Look at what happens in verses 53 and 54. Remember, Jesus had just mentioned how, the, how, how these lawyers were building tombs for the prophets of old whose message they rejected. It's like you're, you're celebrating these prophets now, though you rejected their message when they were here. And look at how they respond in verse 53. As he went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him, to catch him in something he might say. Shows us this hypocrisy of the Pharisees and lawyers would prove dangerous for Jesus. They couldn't handle his message that cut to the heart and refused them to allow, allow them to build their own righteousness out of their own merit. 
So with absolutely no sense of self-awareness, they built they who built the tombs for their prophets, their ancestors killed, decided that they would kill Jesus. You see, the good news of this passage, or one aspect of the good news of it, is this is a foretaste, a promise of uh, a, 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 an anticipation of Jesus' coming death. And it's no accident that this is here. It shows us the kind of things that led to Christ's crucifixion, but it also shows us that Christ has died as the final sacrifice for our sins. Jesus died for hypocrites like you and I. Jesus died in order to break down the walls of self-righteousness that we would try to build or we would try to construct in our own strength. See, the hypocrisy of the lawyers and the Pharisees would prove dangerous to Jesus as they would set out to kill Him. And now we must see the dangerousness of hypocrisy Namely, how it relates to us. Chapter 12, verses 1 to 7. First, we see how it relates to our own fear. So you had the example in chapter 11, verses 37 to 54. And now we receive this exhortation, beginning in verse 1. In the meantime, see how there's a shift in the scene here? In the meantime, when so many thousands of the people had gathered together that they were trampling one another, He began to say to his disciples first, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. So the audience has changed. It's no longer Pharisees and scribes and lawyers that are being addressed. It's now those who would follow after Jesus. And Jesus tells them what? Look at this. He doesn't say, look at those Pharisees and lawyers. Those guys are pathetic. Do not be like them. No, he doesn't say that, does he? He says something else. He warns them, and he warns us in verses 1 to 3. He warns us, fear your own hypocrisy. See, the best way this passage serves you and me is if we don't read it like, yeah, those religious people, they are the worst. The people that insist on holiness, insist on forsaking sin, they are terrible, and Jesus says so himself. No, the way to read this is to actually see the warning of Jesus. And he says, don't point at others and say, don't be like them. Instead, look look in the mirror and be on guard against the hypocrisy that easily grows in your own heart. He uses this illustration that you may or you may not be familiar with. He he mentions leaven or yeast that that grows in in bread and the oven and dwells and then slowly rises. And you make sure that the hypocrisy does not slowly rise in you. I'm not much of a baker, but as I understand it, even a little leaven or a little yeast, if it gets in the food, it will cause the whole thing to rise. So Jesus warns us, be on guard against the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. You see, hypocrisy is not just the guy with the scowl on his face insisting on adherence to arcane rules that, that, that seem like, okay, maybe they're from a day of old or, 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 or parts of the law that, that he doesn't keep himself. What Jesus shows us is that hypocrisy is not what we picture it as so often. 
Hypocrisy is actually the one who trusts in their own self-righteousness before God and His Word. Are there commands of Jesus or of God's Word that you refuse to surrender under? If so, be on guard against hypocrisy in your own heart. Perhaps you refuse to believe the power of the gospel. Perhaps you recognize that Christianity is out of step with our contemporary culture's notions and ideas of gender and sexuality. And you say, well, that that just needs to stay off to the side. Perhaps you refuse to see how Jesus in the Bible demands and, and calls us to love our enemies. Perhaps you refuse to see how the Bible uh, uh, doesn't allow us to cleanly articulate, okay, here's the people who I agree with, here's the people who are my enemies, and I'm going to draw distinctions here. Rather, no, the leaven of self-righteousness is recognizing that we must continually be transformed, or not recognizing, excuse me, that we must continually be transformed by the grace of God at work within us, transforming us in light of the gospel. Let me ask you, who are the fellow church members in our church family who have the right to speak to you about sin or warning signs of sin that they see in your life? Do you welcome questions for brothers and sisters in our church family who maybe see how you're interacting with others and it raises alarm with them? Do you welcome their introspection, their questions? As Christians, we have to think entirely differently about what it means to walk alongside of one another than how we understand it in our human nature. In our human nature in this day and age, we want to comfort one another with the hope of the gospel. We absolutely want to do that. But we have to, as Christians, be careful that we don't coddle one another in a manner that we do not see the seriousness of sin and forsake it. Do you see the difference there between comforting and coddling? Comforting with the gospel Versus coddling one in their sin and, 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 and not urging them to see the seriousness of it and forsake it. We want to encourage one another to hold on to Christ and the hope of the gospel. But we cannot excuse one another's sin and make light of it. See the difference between encouraging one another to hold on to Christ and excusing our sin and saying, well, if I was in their shoes, I'd be doing the same thing. See, hypocrisy is not the person who insists on a standard they cannot keep. It's the person who fails to believe in the power of God to transform them. Ironically, the person who accuses others of being hypocrites might themselves be a hypocrite if they're the one who refuses to believe in the power of God to bring new birth, to transform, to change our affections, to change our desires. So Jesus says, fear your own hypocrisy. Secondly, he says, fear your God. Fear your God in verses 4 to 7. I had a startling startling realization about eight months ago. I had performed Patrick and Katie Dibble's wedding ceremony. They had live-streamed it and recorded it for friends and loved ones of Katie's who could not attend from Australia. A few days after the wedding, I realized, wait a second, this, this ceremony was recorded, and I was mic'd up. I sang the songs everyone sang. I bet I'm on take singing loudly and poorly. See, I'm not a good singer. I don't know the difference between a key and an octave. I sing wrong words or wrong lines of songs. 
It's a joyful noise to the Lord, but it is not joyful if it's a recording where my voice alone is isolated. In that moment, I felt exposed, I felt embarrassed, and we laugh about it. But isn't this a good illustration of what it's like so often for the Christian who feels so many pressures in life? Maybe in the home or in the workplace or amongst friends and loved ones who are not Christians, who tell you things like or imply things to you like, yeah, your faith is fine, but keep it private. Keep it to yourself. You don't want the spotlight on you. You don't want to cause any trouble. You don't want to be embarrassed by those who would disagree with your Christian faith. So just, just keep it quiet. But look what Jesus says in verse 4 and following. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body. And after that, have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies, and not one of them is forgotten before God? Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows. There are so many things happening in these few verses, but do you see what Jesus is seemingly connecting here? One of the great causes of hypocrisy in the life of the Christian is a fear of being embarrassed, a fear of being exposed, fear of being held to account for your beliefs, fear of being called out of step, backwards, bigoted, for believing the exclusivity of the gospel, believing Jesus Christ is God. He is the only way to come to know God. Ironically, those who view all religions as walking along the same paths, they're quite bigoted towards the holders of all the major religions who say, no, they're not. But this is the same feeling we get as we try to follow Jesus. We don't want to be exposed. We don't want the spotlight on us. We don't want to get embarrassed by those who would disagree with our Christian faith. But look at what Jesus says here. He says, don't fear those who can exact some sort of social pressure on you and do nothing more. Do not fear those who can threaten embarrassment to you. Do not fear those who can threaten loss of of, of property or even loss of life. Don't fear those who can kill the body, as verse 4 says. But verse 5, I warn you whom to fear. Fear whom he, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Jesus says your fears that drive you, they are normal and they are fine. We are motivated by fear in a lot of different capacities in life. But what he says is you have to rightly order your fears. You must fear God above those who stand before you that you would fear. There's a fantastic book on this very topic called When People Are Big and God Is Small. We have them down available on our book table. I think they're like five bucks We so often bring God down in our minds and make him small, and the person in front of us that that, that we are terrified of, we make him or her great, and we fear them. But what Jesus does here is he reorients our fears. He says, you fear God. Fear God as you are tempted to give in to hypocrisy. But look at something absolutely fascinating here. You might not have caught it originally. So he says, fear God, fear him who after he has, author- has killed has the authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. That is verse 5. But then look at verse 6. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? 
and not one of them is forgotten before. He's basically saying, like, like in, a, in, a very, in a transaction in the marketplace that had thousands and thousands and thousands of these happen every day, he's say, saying, God sees and knows every single sparrow that is sold. But look at this, verse 7. Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows. Look at what he's saying here. In one sense, Jesus says, fear God. Two verses later, he says, fear not. How does he say this? How does he say this, being logically consistent? What he's getting at is you fear God. You trust God with every aspect of your life greater than the fears that stand around and and, and you think want to silence you, want to destroy you. You will find that God is merciful to sustain and to keep you. And you will find that even as fears arise towards others, if you have a greater fear of God, you do not have to fear. Fear not, you are of more value than the sparrows that are sold in the marketplace that he knows and he keeps his eye on. Do you see that? You can trust God even with the great fears that you have of those who you think can destroy you, those you think can undo your your reputation, those whose words can wreck you, create havoc upon you. We think of approaching our fears like Kevin McAllister in Home Alone when he walked out of his house said, I'm not afraid anymore. I'm not afraid anymore. You hear me? I'm not afraid anymore. Now, Jesus reorients our fears to properly fear God. Not fear Him in a way that, oh, He's about to crush me. But fear Him in a way that He loves me. And He has the hairs on my head numbered. And I can trust Him. And this gets us to, as we conclude, the cure for hypocrisy in verses, what we've seen in verse 4 all the way through the end, verse 12. What is the cure for hypocrisy? It's unwavering trust in Jesus. Unwavering trust in Jesus. Verse 8, I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man will also acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Jesus says, those who acknowledge me, I'll acknowledge before the angels of God. Look at this. The thing says those who deny me will be denied. Everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. What's he getting at here? Here's what I think he's getting at. Your Lord says to you, acknowledge me. Trust me. Walk in obedience to me. Do not be afraid of bearing witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ. But he says, I know you're not going to be doing, you're not going to do this perfectly. 
I think, I think what he's getting at is those who even stumble in their obedience to him. Those who cower back in the fear of those who they feel can crush him. They will have moments where they slip. Oh, I shouldn't. I, 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 in my fear, I shrunk and did not, have the, did not bear witness to Christ as I should. But look at verse 10. He says, everyone who speaks against the word, a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But look, he says, but the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. This is a controversial passage, a confusing passage, a verse. People don't know what to make of it. Here's what I think he's getting at. I think Jesus is saying to us, he's saying, you are not going to walk perfectly in obedience to me. But you will be forgiven. You walk in obedience to me. He says, the one who blasphemes the Holy Spirit is the one who tries to rewrite my gospel. The one who rewrites, who ignores the, the, the work of the Holy Spirit in their life and tries to, tries to make little of, tries to make light of the gospel and tries to bend Christianity in accord with their whims, in accord with their desires, in accord with what they think it should say so that they no longer try to walk in obedience to Christ, but they try to make Christ walk in obedience to what they think he should do. Do you see the difference there? He says, you're not going to follow me perfectly, but you know you will be forgiven. But here's the deal. Don't try to bend me to what you think Christianity should be. See, that's what the Pharisees and the lawyers and the scribes were doing. They were trying to make Christ, and they were trying to make God's law, God's word, the whole of the Old Testament, fit in accord with what they thought it should be, not in accord with what God said it is. And Jesus says, that is hypocrisy. But Jesus says, you want to walk in obedience to me, you walk in obedience to me, knowing you will not do it perfectly, but my forgiveness and my grace and my mercy is there waiting on you when you speak a word against me. But then you pick yourself up, you run to me, trust in my grace, and know that I will find you and I will meet you with mercy. But do not bend the gospel. Do not bend Christianity to be more in line with what you think it should be. And then think that you will not receive the judgment of God as you blaspheme the Holy Spirit. So, the cure for hypocrisy, unwavering trust in Jesus and his gospel. You can trust him. Verse 11, when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. You know, in Jesus' day, those who ruled over synagogues, the authorities who ruled over people religiously, they had the power to enact, to bring about possible ruin upon those who were brought before them for being transgressors of God's law, transgressors of the law that they had concocted. And Jesus says, don't you fear that they can destroy you? Because when you fear that they can destroy you, you will be given to hypocrisy. But you know that when you are brought before them, when, when the person who in your life you think wants your ruin because you are a follower of Christ, when they think they have you dead to rights, Jesus says, don't be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say. The Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. You can trust the Lord, the Holy Spirit. 
So in one sense, we don't want a church full of hypocrites. But let us see what hypocrisy is. Hypocrisy is not trusting the Lord. We don't want a church full of hypocrites. Hypocritically not trusting Jesus is easy. Instead, let us resolve that we will trust Jesus with all of our hearts and know that his Holy Spirit will be with us each step of the way.